The date is Friday, April 15th, and you're listening to Entertain This, a thought-provoking podcast encapsulating all things entertainment. We're back once again talking about Bioshock Infinite. In this part two of our discussion from last time, we're going to dive deep into the plot and put a bow on the entire Bioshock franchise. While we do tie all our loose ends together, the knots aren't just in the storyline. They may also tie up your brain. So enjoy. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to your favorite show on the internet encapsulating all things entertainment. It's Entertain This. Entertain This. As always, I'm Alex. I'm Michael. And I'm Nick. And I am on a two-week hot streak on remembering that we have to introduce ourselves at the top of the show because we sound fairly similar because we're all of Caucasian descent and around the same age. Yep. <laughs> Accurate. We all wear glasses, too. For, for There's now. somebody out there who says, those three boys all sound the exact same. I don't know who they are, but I know they exist. So that's for you. We introduced ourselves. So now you're like cued in. It's like we've calibrated your ears to mm-hmm. understand which of these boys is saying which of these things. Um, Can I this, is, this is me, and I'm Alex. And that's, that's how I sound. So keep that in mind as we move forward. And that was the that was the cold open I had this week. Okay, I guess that works. That's valid. We'll keep it. We'll keep it. I love Nick's lack of complete lack of reaction. <laughs> like, All right, he is a robot, but it's his week, so we're gonna let him be whatever he wants to be. Take us on a journey, Nick. What you got? You can be what you wanna be. Uh, Robots don't get to sing. That's oh, rule one of being a robot. Yeah, Wally well, doesn't have a singing number, does he? I wish he did. Um. So what what did I talk about last time I was on this podcast? Uh, yeah, it was like was a year show? ago. Yeah. You wish Wally had a singing part? It'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? N- it no, not particularly. <laughs> well, I thought it would be. Um, well, anyways, support, last time I was with, here, support with argument. Why? Why Why would it be cool? Because why would it be cool? He doesn't talk at all. And then he, he says in Wally. <laughs> but what if he broke in a song and it'd be like... Would he be able to sing other words? Can you imagine him singing like Frank Sinatra? That'd be pretty cool. No, <laughs> I can't imagine that. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's a fever dream that I Does had. Does Wally once. have a mouth? I mean, kind of. Hold kinda. on. Hold on. Oh, he has a set of eyes and then. Wally know. doesn't have a mouth. If this he started isn't a Wally singing. Wally episode, Alex. <laughs> I would be so scared. <laughs> it would be kind of weird, wouldn't it? Look it up. Wally doesn't have a mouth. He's he. No, I don't like it. Let's move on. Michael's not into this one. Let's keep going. Before we gotta find a bit Michael's into. Absolutely zero. Michael doesn't want to play with. Michael doesn't want to play with us here. Hey, uh, I got something you can play. It's a it's a video game called Bioshock Infinite, which I I heard heard that one. Hey, we talked about that already. You guys are getting stale. You guys are off your game. You guys should just quit. Okay. Well, I'll see you guys later. Bye, Nick. <laughs> this is a dumb bit. We're talking about Bioshock Infinite again today, That's this right. episode, because I didn't finish my vegetables. I didn't finish the discussion of the plot. We got to uh, left off on Battleship Bay or something like that. We but... didn't get far at all. No. If no, I remember not. correctly, we were so deep in the lore and we were so deep in the Kool-Aid that we had only <laughs> finished about the first 15 minutes of the game. So I suggest we speed run this part. 
Okay, well, I got a little intro to get into things here, and then I'll do a little recap, and then we'll get back into the plot. Yeah, that sounds great. Bit. So, the idea of infinity has been around since the ancient Greek philosophers, and it's not hard to figure out how they arrived at this thinking. Infinite is simply the inverse of what is finite. It's the opposite of zero. It's defined as being without constraint. We know that the nature of our everyday worlds are finite in nature. You can look out at the ocean, you can see where it stops. It's being constrained by the horizon. For an example of something that's truly infinite, you have to travel outside of the earth, outside of our lives, and peer into the stars. Those flecks of light in the sky are super far away, right? But eventually, they too are constrained by the differences, however imperceptible to our little human brains. The universe itself is even larger, but we know this to be constrained by what we can see. And it might go on forever and ever, but we really have no way of proving that now. So that leaves the rhetorical question, what is truly infinite? You might say time, but it goes on forever as we know, and it probably will continue long after all of us are dead in graves. But time, specifically timelines, can do this odd thing where they can branch. You can go watch the Disney Plus series Loki for an in-depth kind of uh, depiction of this. And it is at these moments, these decision points, where there is a split. Now, ostensibly, you could create universes whenever you make a decision. You can go on path A as opposed to path B. And when we extrapolate that out across a timeline or across a lifetime, we've created a whole bunch of branches of reality, but only one that we can currently inhabit. And that's the only one that we know. It's the only place that we have lived, lived, and will live. So with that being said, let's go back to where we left off on the story of Booker DeWitt and Elizabeth in the floating city of Columbia in 1912. So we know about the origins of Columbia. We, we, dis- we displayed all this um, in, in the previous episode, part one, as we're calling it. Uh, Columbia was first debuted at the 1893 Columbian Exposition slash World's Fair. It's this super American patriotic town that's stranger religious to. We know why Booker is here. He's looking for a girl who's later identified as Elizabeth. And she's kept up in this giant angel tower structure. And we know that Booker needs to bring Elizabeth to New York unharmed to, quote, wipe away his debts. That's one of the central themes in this game. Bring us the girl and wipe away the debts. Said over and over again. We know that the game's primary antagonist is a super religious dude with a long white beard called Comstock. And we know he's uh, somehow in cahoots with this giant mechanical uh, flying creature named Songbird. And Songbird's trying to keep Elizabeth locked up in the tower. Mm-hmm. And we know there's some weird shit going on in the form of tears. And speaking of weird shit, what's up with those snarky Lutes twins that keep following us around? Well, we'll surely get into that and more as we once again return to the city of Columbia to conclude our discussion of Bioshock Infinite on this episode of Entertain This. I was waiting for the thing, Michael. Entertain This. Okay. You don't get to do that. That's oh, not your yeah, thing. Thought, That's thought, mine and Michael's thing. I thought it was a once thing. per episode thing. did that thing. Yeah. Can you do, can I have a third one? Third one? <laughs> Hold on, wait, say it again. Uh, Entertain this? That's that's the one you get. Yeah. Okay. Because you asked for it. it. Entertain this. (laughs) (laughs) Entertain this. (laughs) So if we continue the plot where we left off, 
last time we were we woke up on this or Booker, I guess, the the game player, woke up on this artificial beach after nearly drowning because our boy the songbird was chasing him after we busted Elizabeth out of the tower. Um and then we found Elizabeth, she's she's dancing to some uh some lovely music. And uh it's just a really happy moment in the game. And I don't think things could get much worse than they are now, right? Maybe get much better. That's the word I'm looking for. It's it's one of those things where like I remember when playing the game at this moment, I was thrown for a big loop because you're <laughs> expecting Elizabeth to be like a prisoner and sad. And yeah. but you like walk up to and see her like just hanging out and it's like very much a Rapunzel situation. Yeah, she got yeah. the Rapunzel DNA in her. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> just like she might be locked a... away, but she's having the time of her life. Yeah, it's more of a she hasn't quite escaped from Columbia, the city, but she's out of her tower. And I think that's like a moment of celebration for her. Mm-hmm. Um and I'd be celebrating too if I had to be confined in a tower like my entire life. So um, it's kind of interesting there. So there's spoiler. probably reason behind the fact that they put her in a tower. It was probably. Ooh, ooh. Ooh, okay. We'll get to that. You want to get oh. to, let's do, let's get into it now. She has powers, right? We know this. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Um, and she you can, can see, open up the tears to other realities. That That's, wormholes through time and space. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much it. Um, Beyond that, she's kept in this tower because there's like a large machine below her called a siphon, mm-hmm. which kind of like puts a damper on her powers. So she can still open up tears and and do all that, but it takes a lot out of her. Mm-hmm. So that's why she's locked up in that, that specific tower. And, so, they, and they're kind of using like the tower as like a basis for experimenting on her powers. Yes. Trying when, to, you hear, when you hear there's a girl locked in a tower you're immediately going to make assumptions about that character. Yeah. And I think that that's what the game developers wanted yeah. you to do. The mm-hmm. same exact thing that they, they try to pull off in Shrek. <laughs> well, <Yeah. laughs> no, you're a hundred percent right. Mm-hmm. Princess Fiona and Elizabeth are the same people. <laughs> Booker yeah. Shrek, same people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. By that. Um, Holy shit, that just blew my Have mind. Have we not done a Shrek episode no, yet? That's Shrek gonna, episode? I, it's on my list. <laughs> that is the next thing on my list. <laughs> so is that what you're doing next? That's why it's on my mind. <laughs> okay. I just got really excited. Hey, that's really hype. You know what? We just got to get through this episode, and then we got some great stuff coming. I promise. Please <laughs> keep listening. <laughs> <laughs> please. <laughs> please. Let me your ear. <laughs> so uh, Booker gets her, distracts Elizabeth away from this crowd. They're dancing on the pier. They're having a good time, uh, and she and he's like, "Hey, we're gonna go to we're gonna go to Paris. Don't you want to go to Paris?" And she's like, "Well, how are we gonna do that?" And of course, there's an airship. This is floating by. He's like, "What if we took an airship?" So this is like, "Okay, we got to get the airship now. That's the, like the main goal." Mm-hmm. Um, so you think, in uh, as soon as you get her away from the crowd, you're like, "Oh, great! This is gonna be the world's longest escort mission," but. And this is a large butt. A tooltip comes up as you're escorting her through a gift shop and says, you don't need to protect Elizabeth in combat. She can take care of herself. So there you go. <laughs> and yeah. she has magical powers. It goes without saying, right? Right. And that was like one of the first like companion NPCs to really kind of make it easy on the player. Um, mm-hmm. And that's something that you can even find in games like uh, God of War or... Uh, the last of us where it's like you you do have these partners that stay with you. But if you, it's, it's, it's the whole notion of like the only way to create like that real sense of love for that character who is constantly with you is to never make it so that they're a burden on the player. Exactly. Exactly. 
because she can take care of herself. You don't need to protect yeah. her. It's not an escort. It's more of like a, a partner. Right. And it's like, it doesn't matter how good the character actually is. If, if they're dying every five seconds, you're just going to be like, <laughs> God damn it, Elizabeth, you mother. <laughs> Put the team on my back once again. Right. <laughs> can you imagine Booker being toxic? Way to go, Elizabeth. <laughs> yes, I can. Yeah. <laughs> Is the what the when when did this game take place the twenties the forties nineteen twelve so it's nineteen tens twelves okay yeah the good old twelves the tens I don't know what you want to call it it's probably the nineteen tens that works that's when the old Rockefellers used to go down to the soda pop shop and one of the Rockefellers got eaten by cannibals <laughs> yep and a whole bunch of other stuff that we're probably going to discuss um but we know she has powers she can protect herself and damn it you know what. Women have always been able to handle things on their own. I'll say it. There's no such thing as a true damsel in distress, ever. Uh, so you make your way up the boardwalk, and there, there's those Lutess twins once again. Uh, they just kind of appear at random intervals, but they're trying to get Elizabeth into taking a brooch or a pendant or something that goes around your neck. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth can't decide, so she lets you choose for her. And the choices are uh, an image of a bird or an image of a cage. The bird or the cage. Well, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. So That's, how much is a bird in the cage worth? Maybe it's worth three birds. If what it's me, I'm throwing that bird necklace into the bush. Because then I get two <laughs> necklaces in return. That's not how this works. <laughs> There's some heavy symbolism going on there. Um, I shouldn't have to spoon feed you that one. Um, but this decision really doesn't matter too terribly much in, the, in terms of the gameplay or the ending or anything like that. It's just kind of a cosmetic thing that Elizabeth will probably display until the end of the game. So I chose the bird because birds are cooler than cages, I think. And I don't know, it, what could that metaphor even mean? Is it like the bird is, um, it's free. It's, it can do whatever it wants. And the cage is, is somber and, uh, I don't know, a, a kind of symbol for what was, I guess. Yeah. I mean that coming, especially after you just rescued her from her tower or her cage, Yep. Like they definitely are trying to push you to push or push, push you to choose the bird. Yeah. In that yeah. case, it's like, it's, it's one of those things that I think they just like most players do subconsciously at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's right after that decision point when you choose the bird or the cage with uh, the Lutest twins and they're like, Oh, I told you she'd pick that because they're like psychic or something. But the crowds are gathering on this boardwalk to see the monument where Elizabeth was held crumble before them. There's smoke pouring out of it. The the giant bird creature, of course, completely wrecked it, trying to stop Elizabeth and Booker from escaping. Because he just he's angry. He's going ham on this on this tower. The people are shocked. They're angry. They're pinning this on the anarcho-capitalist rebel faction called the Vox Populi, which I briefly mentioned before. And you really haven't seen them around just yet, but wait for it, because they'll come later. It's here where we learn that Elizabeth can pick locks, which is a huge deal for getting through doors of all shapes and kinds. And yes, <laughs> this is yet another metaphor. It's inside this boardwalk that we get a glimpse into the racist undercurrents within the game. We have to remember that 1912, uh, segregation was still alive and weld. Um, and you have this these bathrooms that are labeled for, for blacks and Irish versus the much cleaner whites-only restrooms. Uh, it's just once, once again, a reminder of America's troubled past with racial relations. And then in one of these bathrooms or outside of the bathrooms, I guess in the bathroom would be kind of weird in hindsight, but, uh, you meet the couple who is tied up on stage 
when you were getting ready to throw the ball and you got noticed because of the, the branding on your hand, uh, the couple was there and she, they're like, oh, thank you for, for causing all that turmoil and allowing us to escape. So like, oh, cool. I get a reward for not being a racist asshat. That's pretty cool. Does does the dialogue change at all if you choose to throw it at them? Because I don't believe so. Okay. Yeah, they're there, I think, regardless. But I mean, listen, I'm in the right mind. I didn't throw it at them. I threw it at the the announcer guy. It's one of those things that's like, I've never bothered to go back and check. It just feels dirty. Yeah. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be racist even in a game. So you're making your way to the First Lady's Aerodrome. This is where you're going to find the airship that's docked. It's part of a larger amusement park uh, kind of type of place called Soldier's Field. And everything here is geared towards children in some way, which what some might call uh, indoctrinating the youth to be soldiers for Comstock. But this is kind of portrayed as being being this place where kids can go and learn about, you know, Columbia and how great it is kind of scary <laughs> that sounds like hitler youth i'll say it i know we told nick he's not allowed to say hitler on the show anymore i'll say it this time that sounds a lot like hitler youth and i didn't want to say it terrifying <laughs> yeah it is kind of terrifying and they have these uh arcade machine puppet shows where it's duke and dimwit and, mm-hmm. and uh of course duke is the the proud uh soldier and he, he, he's the ideal colombian kid and then dimwit is a dimwit. So, um, <laughs> it's very militaristic around here. There's statues of bald eagles riding on battleships in the halls and, uh, there's cannons, everything in between. It's pretty on brand with America back then. <laughs> Some would even argue today. So eventually you fight your way through all that and you get to the gondola. Once again, you get to a gondola that takes you to the aerodrome only to find that it doesn't work because it's powered by a vigor called shock jockey. So this is similar to that electrobolt vigor or plasmid that you can shoot electricity out of your hands in Bioshock. Mm-hmm. One and two, by the way. So you get to you get to this power. You have to drink this little thing. Uh, I guess it's shaped like a liquor bottle, but you drink it, you get the power. But you have to wrestle it out of the hands of Cornelius Slate, who's holed up in the Halls of Heroes section in the park. Now, let's go on a little metaphorical side tangent of what slate actually represents. You might just think, Oh, he's this rough and tumble veteran soldier guy. who's just dealing with his own stuff. But he, he represents this, this healthy fear of automation. Mm-hmm. Really? That's what it is. Cause he calls you a tin man. He says, Oh, you're one of Comstock's tin soldiers. Aren't you? <laughs> I, I guess <laughs> maybe. <laughs> um, and then he also represents America's ideal of an ideal soldier. It's important to point out that the game does make you fight one of these tin men, one of these motorized patriots. There are these kind of clockwork mechanical men dressed up like George Washington and holding big old Gatling guns. Slate and his followers, after learning about these beasts, desperately seek to die, quote unquote, as soldiers gloriously in battle. And Slate considers Booker DeWitt the man for the job. He wants Booker to shoot him in the face. <laughs> Just let yeah. that let that yeah. sink in for a minute. That's kind of how perverse and messed up this this world is. But here's the boss battle, and the boss wants you to kill him. He wants you to shoot him in the face, and he wants you to kill his men too. He's this battle loving warrior who finds solace and purpose in fighting. And not only that, but he's pissed off at Comstock because he wasn't there at Wounded Knee, despite all the displays in the halls of heroes saying otherwise. So he's kind of. He's got this thorn in his side about Comstock because you weren't there at Wounded Knee. You don't know what was there. So Comstock has has this uh, stolen valor problem 
as the as the way he sees it. Booker was there though at Wounded Knee. While walking through these displays, he has to explain to Elizabeth that he was regretfully there and did some pretty messed up stuff. It's one of these first times that you see Booker display regret over his actions at Wounded Knee and just in general. And that's kind of a huge plot point for his character development because he's dealing with a lot of regret, not only from Wounded Knee, but just like his past life in general. Like, oh, I had to do all this stuff. And then we'll get we'll get to more on that later. But this is kind of like the first exposition where you get to see all that. So... So you fight uh, Cornelius Slate and his men, and it's revealed that Elizabeth's tears can help you and uh, help you in combat. A and B are a form of wish fulfillment. So if she thinks like, "Oh man, a, a piece of cover or a Gatling gun over here would be really helpful," there it is. And there's more on that later, but um, you can get health kits from these tears. Uh, sky hooks will appear. All Elizabeth has to do is open one, shoot a a tear opener thing. Um, but you fight through these displays in the Hall of Heroes, and you learn that Elizabeth Shocker is Comstock's daughter, mm-hmm. and she's referred to as the Lamb, which is yet another well-placed biblical reference. And then you're left with, with the first, I'd argue, meaningful decision of the game. You've downed Slate, he's sitting on a wall, and he presents you with a pistol begging you to shoot him, and giving him a proper soldier's death. Or you can give him, uh, you can just let him live. First decision impactful mm-hmm. regardless of what you choose you do manage to get electrobol uh, sorry shock jockey and you make your way up to the first lady's aerodrome and to the airship and booker promises in this moment to take elizabeth to paris but the uh longitude and latitude of the uh navigator thing says new york so elizabeth notices this and she's like what the fuck booker i thought we were going to paris <laughs> And then uh, she takes this pipe wrench, which is um, tongue-in-cheek reference to Bioshock 1, because that's the first weapon you get. Mm-hmm. It's red. I mean, I don't know what more I can say. <laughs> it's a pipe wrench. And she hits you over the head, and then you pass out. Um, Booker Smack. has several concussions <laughs> throughout the course of this game, undoubtedly. <laughs> she hits him with a pipe wrench, and then... It transitions, and he's in a different outfit, like in one of those trendy TikToks. <laughs> Smack. And now Booker's in a new outfit. I don't know about that. <laughs> I'm trying to relate to the youth. Very good. <laughs> the youth need to play this game. It would, it would put things in perspective or something. It's just a good game, okay? That's my okay. second time I've said that. Um, so Booker awakens to find the airship. He's still wearing the same clothes. Uh, to find the airship under control of Daisy Hold Fitzroy. On. Why'd you why'd you take a pause and look at us over your mic like that? What were we supposed yeah. to pick up from that? He's still wearing the same clothes, okay? He's What's not that doing mean? a TikTok. Oh, you were just falling back on the joke that I made. I gotcha, I gotcha, I gotcha. I'm it sorry, I thought there was like metaphorical significance to the fact that he was wearing the same clothes, because nah. that's what like this entire episode has been about. <laughs> nah. He's wearing the same clothes. There's metaphors everywhere, so keep your eyes peeled for that. So if we if we go back for a minute, you mentioned that Elizabeth Elizabeth's powers like during combat is she can like open up tears if you can get different. You can unlock different parts of the map like yeah. ammo caches and uh, robots. Helpful that you can stuff. Take yeah, helpful yeah. stuff. That was one of those things that really stuck out to me as I was playing the game was that it seems like she can do a bunch of really cool shit and yeah. like make a lot of awesome stuff happen. 
but it seems like she's so limited during combat and it's just like come on now like what if we just like opened up a tear and a train came through <laughs> the the thing and it's just like why can't we do cool like cool environmental stuff like that it's always just like nope ammo landscape feature uh robot <laughs> one of those three for 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 four hours that's all yeah. you get <laughs> michael you you work in coding you know the answer to this question but canonically, let's examine that because maybe we could argue that it's the siphon that's keeping her powers limited. She can only open one of these tears at one time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not. I, I'm not arguing that. I'm not. It's more like at some point she does straight up just like open a quick little tear to Paris. It's true. She does. Yeah. So it's like, OK, if she can do that, why can't she rip open a tear to bring in some other cool stuff? Like, I don't know. Why is it always got to be ammo? Why is it always got to be a can robot? She only, can she only bring things in? She can't go out. So the, the way it's explained in the game is she can open a tear, which is basically a doorway to another dimension. It's she can bring things through, through time and space. She can bring things tr- through, but they have to be there. Like there has to be something present or something like that. But can she like and then like step into it? Yeah, yeah, that happens in the game actually. Okay, we're getting there. We're getting there. Hang loose. <laughs> so we have Daisy Fitzroy. She's taking control of the airship, um, and she says, "This is the for the Vox Populi." And you're like, "Oh, there's the enemy. There's the enemy we've been talking about." Um, she gives you this gives you this mission to go find a gunsmith in town, and that the town's called Finkton. You're now in the in the Finkton area of the of Columbia which is kind of like this big manufacturing plant. Everybody has a job at Finkton. Everyone's gainfully employed. It's this shining city of gold where you can find uh, work. Um, it's kind of messed up. <laughs> we'll get into that later. But you got to find Chen Lin because he's making guns and the Vox Populi need the guns. So that's that's what you're doing here. Um, the funny part of the word Fink and Finkton and Jeremiah Fink is that it actually refers to a strike breaker in the context of unions. So you might remember from early American history, middle American history, American history around this time where we had a lot of strikes. We had a lot of like union uprisings because they were working 16 hours a day. Um, Working from the time they were four years old until they were in their late 60s. Yeah. Yeah. There's no like retirement fund. Yeah. There's kids running textile mills and getting fingers chopped off and working in coal mines and all this. This is before we passed like the 18 hour or the eight hour day, 40 mm-hmm. hour work week standardized everything. So it's, it's important to keep that in mind. It fits snugly within the historical context of 1912 America. So Fink is a, is a strike breaker, basically, which kind of tracks with Jeremiah Fink's character, but it doesn't make anything right or good. I'm just stating the facts that, um, this didn't continue until present day because we, the workers, weren't going to have it. Um, kind of fits in pro- with progressive politics at the time, too. Um, Elizabeth, <laughs> you find her, and surprisingly, get this, she doesn't want to be your friend anymore after that betrayal. <gasps> oh, come on. <laughs> but she ends up rescuing you after you nearly fall off the city in pursuit of her. Once again, flipping the damsel in distress narrative once again, because she agrees to one last heist, seeing as Booker is really her only way of reaching Paris. It's kind of like this deal with the devil type of thing. It's like, well, I don't want to make a deal with you, but you're my only way out of the city. So got to make things work for now. So eventually you find your way into the gun shop of Chen Lin, only to find that he's been captured by the police. 
So you got to go to the police station and bust them out. But you fight your way to the, the, the jail and he's been killed. He's been tortured to death. Um, there's just a bloody body there. And it's like, ah, shit, that's the end of the game. Well, we can't get to New York or Paris without an airship. There's no aeroship if there's no guns for the Vox. You're just sitting there like, shit, dead is dead, right? Dead is dead. <laughs> but then those rascally Lutest twins appear once again, explaining that in this universe, Chen Lin is dead. But if you go through a tear, he's alive. Alternate universes, once again. Yeah, because like it's at this point where you're starting to realize that they have been going through like all these different universes and just trying to like figure out just what's different. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> That's like the, they go through this one tear and then Chen Lin's possibly alive in this one, mm-hmm. but the, the, the universe you jump to the Vox Populi are much more powerful Yeah, because they somehow got guns or something like that. But um, it's, it, it's kind of starting to play with your mind because you're like, what? What universe do we start at? Which universe are we in? Right. It, it starts making you think like once your gameplay reaches across the different universes, like everything else you start to question. Like what? what is real anymore? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, is Booker a, actually a part of this timeline? Is like Columbia even like a part of like a consistent timeline? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's just think. like, what? what is the, what are the constants? What are the variables? Hey. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big deal. <laughs> it's going to drop constant and variables on me like that. Um, <laughs> so you do go through this tear where supposedly Chen Lin is alive. Um, but there's something strange about this universe. A, the Vox Populi are locked up and they're, they're rabble-rousing in the jail. There's a lot of them in the jail this time around. Um, and the, the, the enemies you killed in the police station, they're weirdly alive again. Uh, but they have like this static type of thing going on and they're screaming. They're like, oh, they can't deal with reality. And that's because they're suffering from a mental break of sorts because they remember being dead. And they're in this state of superposition no. where they're both alive and dead. No. Yes. No. <laughs> no what? I don't like any of that. It's not. No, it's not fun. I, of course, put them out of the misery. It is the opposite of Schrodinger's cat where like, well, the cat could be alive or dead. You don't know until you open the box. This is like, hey, you open the box. The cat's both alive and dead and it's freaking out about it. (laughs) It's horrifying. It's the superposition of Schrodinger's cat. And that's that is the probably the worst thing I've ever heard about. All the pain of death, but it's never ending. Yep. That's what they're experiencing. And I said this wasn't a horror game. (laughs) No. Was I silly? Um, <laughs> it's kind of a, a horror game if you think about it, but you do find Chen Lin. You eventually make your way back to the gun shop, the, the gun show. Am I right? Um, nope. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> you find Chen Lin in his shop. He's working on these invisible machines. You can't see the machines, but he's sitting there like cranking away at the mill and whatever else. And he's like, oh, you have to speak up. I can't hear you. It's like, dude, are you, are you okay? <laughs> He's got the same kind of like dimension jumping syndrome that I just talked about with the, with the guards he killed at the police station. Mm-hmm. Um, he remembers being both alive and dead and therefore he's working on his machines that were there, but are not there anymore. So, um, a little messed up. <laughs> 
It's in this dimension that it's revealed that Booker is a martyr for the Vox Populi, whose open sacrifice sparked the warfare between the, founder, the founders and the Vox. The founders are like the, the people running Columbia. They're, um, they're uh, allied with Comstock, basically. So Fitzroy, convinced that the non-dead Booker is an imposter, turns her forces against him because he doesn't believe that she doesn't believe that Booker can be alive in this universe because she, she she saw Booker get killed right in front of her. She's going to, oh, here's Booker. Yeah. Uh-uh. <laughs> no, I'm not buying that. <laughs> um, so there's this big battle that ends in, ends, you go up to Finkton and there's this, this, this whole ordeal. And at the end of all this, Elizabeth ends up killing uh, Daisy Fitzroy. It's it's a it's a big deal in the game because mm-hmm. uh, she wants to prevent Daisy Fitzroy from killing like a child, a little founder child, who's just like minding his own business. And then she's like, "Everybody has to die, and this is how it's going to be." And Elizabeth walks up behind her with a pair of scissors and goes, "Dead." Turn out that not how it have to be. <laughs> Turn out this can be how it have to be. It's uh, it's her first moment where you realize that her innocence is kind of fading, you know. Um, and she asks Booker when they get to the airship after all this, "How do you forget?" And then she asks, "How do you wash away the things you've done?" To which Booker replies, "You don't. You just learn to live with them." So you think, Big okay. Facts. Uh, the game is for sure over now. At this point, they're going to end on this note. It's it's all over. We can pack it up. We can go to Paris or New York. It's this big decision point that doesn't actually happen because just then our old pal Songbird attacks the uh, the airship and they crash back into the city. Yeah, oh, yep. shucks. Still alive and kicking. <laughs> alive and kicking. Even you in this universe. You thought you was done? This is Bioshock, <laughs> idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even in this universe, you're. I think you're three universe jumps away from your original timeline. Maybe you're in the same one. I don't know. Um <laughs> yeah, there's st- Songbird's still there. He's always there. It's, it's one of those constants. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're like, oh shit. So then you crash into crash into Emporia, which is kind of the upper class section of Columbia. It's very nice. There's marble everywhere. You know, street signs are nice and polished. But uh, they're being attacked by the Vox Populi because in this universe too, the Vox Populi have risen up, and they're starting to seize the means of production like any good communist would. Um. So it used to be a very nice place, but now it's war-torn. Booker and Elizabeth make their way to this graveyard to, quote-unquote, pay respects to Elizabeth's mother, Lady Comstock, only to find the twins once again creeping in the graveyard. <laughs> and this time, they're digging their own graves. You see on the gravestone, Lutess, and they're both just sitting there digging their graves, which I guess is a metaphor, if you want it to be, but it just shows that they exist across time at this point. They're both alive and dead because um, they've somehow gotten over that that mental state where they're both alive and dead. They're just they're they're used to it. They're chilling. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where like everything kind of comes back to them, and they're the, really the keys that make you really question everything that's going on around you. Because <laughs> at that point, you're like, okay, so does that mean that once your experience in this world is done, you just bury yourself and die to just wake up with all the same memories in another dimension? Like who knows? How, like it's it's one of those things where like it, it through them you you start to question all of the logistics of everything that you think is how it works. 
Yeah, because they even say, like, this is where they say their their classic line, lives, lived, will live. Live, Dies, died, will laugh, live. love. No. <laughs> <laughs> lived, have laughed, will love. <laughs> they could say that. If, if Alex is making this game, that's what they would say. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. <laughs> I don't know. I just love how snarky they are about all of this because they're like... Whoa. So they probably say exactly what they're saying now if I were to make the game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're being kind of snarky and condescending. They're like, whoa. It's like, you want to be actually helpful here or you're just going to say random shit all the time? No. Nah, true. They're just there to observe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then you try to question them, press them deeper, and you turn around and they're gone. So... <laughs> thanks you're really helpful they are very helpful you just don't know it yet um so you're exploring emporia and to get to comstock house because at this point you decide you know what i've had enough of songbird wrecking my shit i'm going to go to comstock house and we're going to take care of comstock therefore taking care of the bird the songbird uh that's that's kind of your new goal here and then you can go to paris that's that's the telescope of goals i guess uh, but there's a catch. To get into Comstock House, you need a scan of Lady Comstock's hand to unlock the gate. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you, uh, she, she's, she's in her grave, and then you're like, oh, shit, she's dead. I have to go carry this dead body and scan the thing. Not mm, the body. Not so not fast. Not the body. You don't need the whole body. <laughs> Just the it's hand. You could have chopped off the hand. You could have. They could have. I'm just saying. But instead, Elizabeth decides to open up a tear, which can be a dangerous thing, as we found out. And then that somehow sparks up um, Lady Comstock's ghost, because Comstock is watching all this from, from afar and uses the uses some sort of machine, a mini siphon, to siphon Elizabeth's energy into creating this ghost, which is kind of strange, uh, I guess. But this is, you're thinking, oh, great, it's a boss battle. Of course, it does turn up turn out to be a boss battle but before you do any of that you have to discover three truths she has some truths to show you in the form of tears um the first truth that you see is that elizabeth is comstock's adopted daughter which he plans to plans to groom into taking over after his death see the reason behind all this is that he's dying of cancer because of all the radiation that he's uh, absorbed from the tears that he uses to see the future to prophesize that's why he's called the prophet in the game. Um, and he's like, well, I, I got to find a successor. So he adopts Elizabeth. There you go. And then the the second truth is that Comstock had the Lutesses, those snarky twins that we were talking about before, build the siphon to limit Elizabeth's powers. So you're like, oh, great. These twins are actively being anti-helpful now. <laughs> <laughs> or they were in the past, at least. Then the third truth is that... Um, Comstock ended up killing his wife and the Lutesses all to hide the truth. So the truth is hidden behind this wall of time and space that nobody can get to until now. Um, and Comstock's just kind of chilling at this point, which is not cool. Um, this is all revealed through ladies, Lady Comstock's ghost who, um, she's a really annoying boss battle. I'll, I'll say that because mm -hmm. she keeps reviving people that you shot in the face like two minutes ago and it's just it's an ordeal it's an ordeal but you do manage to overcome that and then elizabeth is visibly shook as as i think you should be after seeing that after your mom just rises from the grave it's like what the hell <laughs> um 
but you do unlock the gate. Uh, you pull the lever to activate this gondola. And right then, the songbird swoops up and throws you through a window <laughs> 20 feet in the air. <laughs> Songbird's always going to show up. He's Songbird's all... coming back around every time. <laughs> he is. <laughs> I just remember this moment of relief when I was like, okay, I can see Comstock House over there across this gondola bridge. And Songbird just swoops out of nowhere. And you're like, oh, damn it. <laughs> Not again. I really thought I was going to have this one moment where I could get things done. And there, he's, there he is once again. So he throws you through a window and surprise, surprise, you black out once again. It's the, <laughs> what, fifth concussion that we're on nowadays <laughs> now with the booker. Um, and of course, you wake up in this apartment that you used to live in. And people are pounding on the door saying, bring us a girl, wipe away the debt. It's kind of creepy. Uh, you don't know mm-hmm. why this keeps happening, but uh, it does. And the the Lutest twins are there at the front door. And so is Elizabeth. And they're all saying, bring us the girl, and wipe away the debt. So clearly this, this phrase means something. I don't know what it means. I wish people would stop saying it at this point, <laughs> uh, but they are. And it's really creepy. But you wake up, you wake up and... Just as you awaken, the songbird's coming in with his claws. He's getting ready to finish the job. He's getting ready to probably lop your head off. But just then, Elizabeth steps in and talks to Songbird. She's like, wait, 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 wait. She surrenders herself. She's like, I'm sorry. Please just take me home. Take me back. So, of course, the the songbird obliges and leaves Booker to recover from his fifth concussion, probably. (laughs) And uh, Elizabeth's taken back home. She's taken to Comstock House by the songbird. So, this... Maybe it could be construed as like the third point where you think of the game's maybe over. It's kind of a sad ending, isn't it? Like if it ended right there. Yeah. Like, well, fuck Elizabeth's gone. What do we do now, guys? <laughs> um, but you pursue. You're in pursuit. Because you're not going to go down without a fight. That's not what Booker does. So he's pursuing Elizabeth across this gondola bridge or wherever he was into Comstock House. And it's suddenly snowy. And this is weird because it's stated that it's July 1912 and all of a sudden it's snowing. Mm-hmm. A little weird. Um, you can see very, various tears throughout the house that are more or less just audio recordings of what has been done to Elizabeth uh, from the time you've woken up, basically. And there's various methods of torture and brainwashing and you've actually been brought forward in time to Comstock House in the year 1984. So <laughs> several years have passed and Elizabeth is just completely brainwashed at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you fight through and there's these really weird enemies with like these horns coming out. Uh, phono- phonograph? Is that what it's called? Yeah. 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 The boys like, of silence. Yeah. Oh, I hate those guys. <laughs> Super creepy. Yeah. <laughs> Don't they kind of look like the siren men? Yes. That, like that's got yes. really popular recently. Yeah, Siren Men. Uh, if you want to look it up, be be scared. Um, look that up. <laughs> they're very creepy. I don't I don't know if you actually get to kill one in the game, but um, they're an enemy. Know that. Yeah, they just scream at you. Yeah. I think you. There is the time when it's like they get you with like a actually like very good jump scare. Yep. Yes. Yep. Where you turn around and it's like there's one just sitting there staring at you. Or whatever that does. It's, yeah, they got me good with that jump stare the first time. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, whoa, fuck. <laughs> uh, so it's 1984. You're in Comstock House. That's all you know so far. Um, and then you, you see this scene as 
this older Elizabeth is talking to you. You can tell she's old because your voice changes as you get older, but um, you climb up this little ledge thing and there's that scene, this black and white scene of New York City being attacked by all kinds of airships and Zeppelins and stuff. Mm-hmm. And you see on like a little billboard for the sharp, the keen eyed among you, you can see new for 1984. It's a car advertisement or whatever. That's how you know it's 1984. But um, basically the city of Columbia is raining fire upon New York City because that was Comstock's plan all along is to overtake America again. Yep. Or he, he says, cleanse the Sodom below, which is um, a biblical term once again. Yep. Because Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah. They were sinning quite a lot. Yep. <laughs> I don't remember what happens in the Bible. Somebody will have to remind me. Uh, if I remember right, I think it was, I think that's a tale where there's the family that is like the, the one righteous family within it. Mm-hmm. They leave and that's where it's like the wife like looks back and she gets turned to a pillar of salt. Salt. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. I'm think... not supposed to look back. God said, don't look back and... <laughs> Cool guys don't look at explosions. God. Yeah. (laughs) God was basically like, y'all still believe in me? Y'all still love me? That's great. I don't want y'all to see what I'm about to do. If you look back, I'm turning you into salt. (laughs) And she looked back and saw what God was doing to Sodom and... Yep. Salt. (laughs) That's hardcore. God's hardcore, dude. Old Testament God didn't fuck around. I'll tell you. (laughs) You gotta get down with them old testies if you haven't yet. You gotta hit them up. Damn. (laughs) Hit up the old testies. Learn some shit. Yeah, there's a lot of biblical stuff going on. Um, So you remember the 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 scene. This scene that you saw before you was actually you know in the in the beginning of the game too, Mm -hmm. but now it just comes full circle. You're like, oh shit, this is actually happening. So, um. And you talk to this elderly Elizabeth and you're like, what What the hell happened? Why didn't you hold out for me? I know you could have. She says, well, you know, time rots everything, even hope. And then this older Elizabeth returns to, returns Booker to 1912 and gives him information about how to control the songbird. She says, give this little card to pass to Elizabeth and she'll know what to do. Okay. She, she was, just trust me All on right. this one. Sends it back. <laughs> um, in hopes that, you know, maybe he can recover the younger self and erase the years of torture and brainwashing that she suffered. Um, so wouldn't you know it, Booker rescues Elizabeth. And the the pair, um, there's a scene where Elizabeth is getting something, some kind of surgical thing, procedure going mm-hmm. going on. Um, and then you have to fight. You, you're like, all right, I'm going to go fuck up Comstock. Uh, you don't because he escapes. And then you have to pursue him to his airship. And Comstock... Once you're here, uh, demands that Booker explain to Elizabeth, uh, her past, basically like what happened, why, why he's even here. And he, he gets angry for some reason. Cause he's like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's so then he's, he's all pissed off. And then Booker takes Comstock's head and slams it on a baptismal font. And then Comstock says it is finished. And that's important because those are some of Jesus's last words on the cross as he was dying. Yeah. So Comstock's like this God complex going on Yeah. once again. And the people behind Bioshock just have a real tendency of hyping a person up only for it to be killed through a cutscene. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you get a choice in this moment because you just like, you slam his head down. You don't even get to button mash or anything. You just drown him basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's kind of messed up, but yeah, I just, for once, I just want to fight like, 
Robo Andrew Ryan uh, in a final boss fight or something. No, uh uh-uh. uh. <laughs> Robo Andrew Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> Bioshock 4. <laughs> that's what's been holding them up. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Uh, but Booker denies knowledge of Elizabeth's past, but she asserts that he has simply forgotten. So he's forgotten. He actually mm-hmm. did the things. He can't explain it. He just can't remember for whatever reason. Now there's the, there's a final boss battle, which is super annoying because you have to defend this column of energy or something on top of the airship that makes it go or something. Uh, but the Vox Populi, they're coming down hard. They got, they're throwing everything at this giant airship. Um, for, for whatever reason, because I think Comstock is on board and you're, of course, the false Booker to wit, or so they think. Mm-hmm. Um, so you fight through all that and you use Songbird uh, to destroy the siphon because of the card that older Elizabeth gave to the younger Elizabeth, gave to Booker to give to the younger Elizabeth. Um, so there you go. You can control Songbird at this point. Um, and once the siphon is destroyed, Elizabeth gains access to her full power and she can learn the truth. The device that is used to control Songbird is destroyed and somehow, and Liz, the, the Songbird tries to attack them. But just before they get killed by the Songbird, after he's destroyed the, the siphon, um, Elizabeth opens a little tear after she goes Super Saiyan, of course. And they are transported once again to the underwater city of Rapture. <sighs> yeah. And I can just remember <laughs> when this scene happened, I shit my stomach. You were like, yeah! Yeah, it's, it's, it's in that moment. You're just like, oh my God, I am playing Bioshock. <laughs> it's funny because you're like in Rapture and you're like, okay, now I'm ready for five more hours of gameplay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was yeah. hoping it was over. Now I want five more hours of gameplay. And just as soon as you think that, they're like, back out you go. <laughs> Pretty much like that. I was so excited when Rapture came along again. I was like, yes, I get to fucking fuck up Splicers again. And, and yeah, yeah. It was <laughs> Shaking with case. anticipation. Um, so as soon as you get there, Songbird's outside. Uh, Booker and with are inside a room of some sort. There's a piece of glass separating you, of course. But uh, Songbird's crushed by the pressure and mm-hmm. dies. And Booker or Elizabeth has this moment of like mourning because that was her only friend growing up is was her protector was the songbird. So seeing him go is kind of like this painful moment for her, but a necessary evil. Yeah. Um, and, and this perfect moment of symbolism, just as songbird is falling below the, the glass, you see off in the distance in the tunnel is a little sister mourning the loss of the big daddy. Mm-hmm. It's just, uh, you, you couldn't have made a better <laughs> like connection right there. Um, so eventually you're back in Rapture. You kind of do this reverse Jack from Bioshock 1 because you take a bathysphere, but this time you're going up. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have this this moment where you're going up to the surface and wouldn't you know it, what's up there? A lighthouse. Because there's always a lighthouse, right? right? Yeah. There's always, always a lighthouse. A lighthouse. Uh, it's <laughs> and on the way up, there's this, there's this moment where Booker remarks, a city at the bottom of the ocean? Ridiculous. <laughs> It's like, where'd you just come from? A floating city? That wasn't ridiculous. It's, uh, I don't know. It's kind of a meta commentary between the two games, I think. Mm-hmm. Why can't these boys just stay on dirt? <laughs> <laughs> Great question. Just um, put these boys on dirt. 
dirt. I want boots to soil. <laughs> because a city can't be built on dirt. What do you? A city built on land? <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> Preposterous. <laughs> but Elizabeth explains as soon as they get up there that she sees thousands of doors opening all at once. And you're like, what? What the? F Did the siphon like give you drugs or something? <laughs> you're just seeing all this shit. So they get cool, to the surface. Elizabeth, let's get you some water, honey. <laughs> Not too much water. You look like you look like you partied out. <laughs> uh, but they get to the surface. They go up to the lighthouse. They get on the, like the little stairs, I guess, and they found that the lighthouse door is locked. And you're like, ah, oh, well, that's the end of the game. No, <laughs> it's not the end of the game. <laughs> Elizabeth finds the key magically almost in her hand saying that it's always been there. I just couldn't see it. So it's like that metaphor of sight and blindness, you know, rearing its head once again. <laughs> uh, and then you go out into the sea of doors, the sea of lighthouses where every star is a distant reality. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a sea of lighthouses. And you walk through these, these doors, you keep walking through these lighthouse doors and there's always like an alternate reality on the other hand. And you're like, all right, how many times is this going to go on? <laughs> um, and then before you is these docks, you know, there's these pathways on top of the ocean, uh, but they only spur in ways that the game wants you to go. There aren't infinite amount of spurs, which is, I guess, kind of a, a metaphor yeah, there. Counterintuitive. Come on, Bioshock Infinite. <laughs> <laughs> But it's in this sea of doors that they see alternate versions of Elizabeth and Booker, and they're also walking on their own paths. This is one of the coolest scenes in the whole game. It's really mind-bending, but yeah. ugh, so good, so good. Um, but you can only travel on the path that's laid out in front of you. I mean, that's a, a big fat metaphor for determinism, if I've ever seen one. But mm -hmm. uh, she explains that there are constants and variables. Yeah. Constantinople. <laughs> There's always a lighthouse. There's always a man and there's always a city. And, and she says that classic line that I still sometimes say today, we all swim in different oceans, but we land on the same shore, which mm -hmm. is just like, hmm, yeah, I guess you're right. Um, <laughs> but they are within one of infinite possibilities, possible realities out there in the sea and the sea of doors dependent on the choices on the timeline. And through one of the doors, there is a flashback of Booker being baptized he almost goes through with it, but he rejects it at the last minute, minute yep. saying that a dunk in the river isn't going to change the things I've done. And speaking of choices, how about that big one that Booker made all those years ago? Robert Lutes, who's the, the male twin, mm -hmm. um, approached Booker on behalf of Comstock to acquire Booker's inf infant daughter, Anna DeWitt. As Comstock was rendered sterile due to all the exposure of radiation from the terrace he used to see the future, um... And Booker attempted at the last minute to take Anna back from Comstock. But the closing tear, just as it closes, severs Anna's pinky finger. Comstock was Comstock raised Anna as his own daughter, Elizabeth, and her severed finger stayed behind in Booker's dimension, which allowed her to exist in two realities simultaneously. Yep. So this is how she can kind of jump realities. Um Anna is Elizabeth, by the way. I didn't I didn't clarify that. Um <laughs> But Have you clarified is, who Comstock is yet? We'll get there. Um, okay. <laughs> this is the source of her ability to create tears. And Robert Lutes, he's he's a little, he's not sitting too well with this decision. He's like, why did I help Comstock steal a baby? 
that's a little messed up. Um, he said he said counting his money. Why did I do that? <laughs> oh, money. <laughs> that's right. No. But uh he convinces his twin sister, twin something. No. No, him. Not... He convinces himself in yeah. female form. He convinces himself in female form. <laughs> yes. Those are the twins. Alternate reality. And they yeah. help uh, bring Booker to the reality where Columbia exists to rescue Elizabeth, thus setting off the events in the game with like the two Lanky. of them in the rowboat traveling to the lighthouse with Booker. So there you go. That's how you set up the, nice. the kind of game here. So Elizabeth explains that Comstock will always remain alive in alternate universes as the Lutesses Lutes have enlisted the Bookers, plural, of numerous different universes to try and end the cycle. Stopping Comstock requires intervening in his birth. So you have to smother the, the guy in the crib pretty much at this point. Um, what that means is that you can, you can have the baby Hitler argument if you want to, of course. Um, Booker realizes the only way to end the cycle is to kill Comstock and just stop him from ever existing. So mm -hmm. they can do this, but there's a catch. Elizabeth asks if Booker is sure if he wants to do that. And so Elizabeth takes Booker back in time to a baptism that he attended once again. And he's like, what, what the hell? Why are you bringing me back here again? Um, while Booker, Booker DeWitt changed his mind and was not baptized. Some Bookers in alternate dimensions accepted the baptism and were reborn in the waters of baptism as Zachary Comstock. So it's like this uncomfortable thing where you're like, Ooh. <laughs> oh, 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 I'm Comstock. Oh, I'm the bad guy. <laughs> cool. So that's like one of these stomach turning moments where you're like, mm, <laughs> Booker, no. <laughs> and then, uh, so you go through with this baptism, but mm -hmm. as soon as you take the, the preacher guy's hand and you turn around, you notice that there's Elizabeth and then there's also other Elizabeths. There are several Elizabeths here. Mm -hmm. And um, they just hold him down uh, as he's being baptized, thus drowning him at his moment of baptismal choice, preventing Comstock's existence. And Booker's last words are that he realizes that he's both. He's both Comstock and Booker DeWitt. Mm -hmm. And Porque after he <laughs> <laughs> was Hispanic. Yes, that's what he'd say. <laughs> Um, but one by one, you see the Elizabeth start to poof out of existence and disappear. And there's only one left when the screen cuts to black on the very last. And if that wasn't enough, <laughs> if you're not crying at this point, your jaw's not on the floor and you're recovering from a existential crisis, there's one more little cherry on top. It's this post credit scene where Booker awakes in his apartment once again on October 8th of 1893. And he calls out for Anna. He's like, Anna. And he opens the door to her room right before the screen cuts to black, leaving it in a state of ambiguity as to whether Anna is in there or not. Don't you hear a baby crying, though? I think you do. Yeah, so. So it's. She's probably in there. Hopefully she's I'm in saying. there. I don't know. Maybe you're just hallucinating, she's, but. She's probably in there. There you have it, guys. That's Bioshock Infinite. Um, it's Infinitely fun. It's just one of those <laughs> games that messes you up for a solid week afterwards you have an existential crisis and then you're like man what even is reality anymore <laughs> dude string theory is so nuts but i love everything that explores it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Because, I mean, the premise of it is basically, like, every choice you make is the birth of a new universe. That's where, the crazy part. <laughs> where another universe is made where you made the other decision. Mm-hmm. And, like, if you think about how many decisions you make in a day, even just, like, not knowing you're making decisions, what shirt you wear, whether or not you uh, run that red light or don't run that red light or... Whether or not you set three alarms or four alarms. Oh, you slept through three, but you would have made it through four. Yeah, just one for you, Nick. Um, But yeah, there's so many. Like, if string theory is true, it is truly infinite, the number of possibilities. Mm -hmm. Hence, Bioshock Infinite. Hence, Bioshock Infinite. There you go. Um, So maybe think twice about the decisions you make. No, I mean, that's kind of the thing about string theory is you don't need to think about your decisions at all because in another universe, you made the other decision. You already have. Yeah. You've already lived. You've already died. If you, that's that's kind of the beauty of string theory is if you think back on your life, you're like, man, I really regret doing this. It's like, well, don't worry about it too much because there's a version of you out there who is living that choice. He's and they probably the wish they made the choice you made. So, <laughs> Yeah, it just makes you think about your choices and your decisions and who you could be. Just what go with God. <laughs> oh, go with God. <laughs> just, just get out there, have some fun, play Bioshock Infinite. But uh, got a little conclusion statement. If if you guys are game, I know I know I just racked your brains a lot. I know this game probably screwed up your head. <laughs> it sent chills down my spine every time I watch the final cutscene. I'm like, woo, <laughs> spicy. <laughs> That's a spicy amita boy. Um, you just get this feeling of like emptiness, contemplation. You're feeling all these emotions about the realities that you could have existed in. And I don't know, maybe there's a reality out there where I didn't go to college and I never met you guys and I never did a podcast. Or maybe there's a thick Nick out there who became president. Or maybe, maybe there's a thick Nick out there who's actually thick. <laughs> <laughs> That's the crazy part. <laughs> maybe there's one where I'm actually thick and I'm riding on a train as a hobo. Who knows? But... Regardless, in my last playthrough, it took me about... um, That's ultra Nick. (laughs) Peak Nick. It took me a while to recover, but uh, I'm back. You know, I'm back here. Uh, It's a a good feeling when you're done with this game. I don't want you to think it's a bad feeling. Um, The moment moment you've played through it, the moment you felt it, you're like, hmm, I I really wish I wasn't feeling this way, but as soon as you're done with it, I'm I'm feeling good. So here we are. It's one of those games with, I think, infinite replayability, at least for me. And really, it's nothing short of a masterpiece of a game. And I'm struggling to find one thing wrong with this game, honestly. Um, maybe maybe I have one qualm with it. It's Maybe maybe it's a little too short. Maybe if you only mainline the main campaign, it, you can get it done in, like, what, 10 hours or so? This game needs to be infinite. <laughs> <laughs> Don't put it on the tin if you're not going to deliver, you sons of bitches. <laughs> overall play time is maybe just a little too short. I'll say that much. Uh, but it goes down easy and it's a refreshing taste. And most importantly, it makes you think. And if a game doesn't make you think more critically about something as complex as say string theory or us history, then That's all I ever think about, maybe it's just another <laughs> game, but what sets the Bioshock series of games apart from all others is the intense layering of symbols, ideology, and philosophy married with the first-person shooting mechanics that are flawless and well thought out. And how about that ending, huh? I just had to pick up my jaw off the floor. (laughs) And I sat (laughs) staring at a wall the first time I played through it uh, for a solid, I don't know, 30 minutes or so. (laughs) 
<laughs> Even talking about it now kind of makes me relive it in some way. It just makes you think about the person you became if you had taken a different path in life and how many choices you make every day. But in the end, our choices make us. And thanks for choosing to listen to this podcast. I hope that you will go play Bioshock Infinite because I think you deserve the experience. And thanks for listening. Yeah, you said that, and thanks for listening part like you do at the end of every episode. And thanks for listening. <laughs> you don't say it like that. That's just the fun part. I have a quick this for us if you guys <gasps> want to hear it. Yeah, I would love to. Let's get into it. I don't know how long this is going to take me, but I'm not going to stop. So <laughs> play your timer, timer boy. All right, three, two, one, giggity to go. So as you all know, I am a fan of one thing over anything else, and uh, I've become such a fan of it. Like most white boys who wears glasses, uh, it's become part of my personality. <laughs> oh, trains. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> Spider-Man. Oh, that's right. Of course. Uh, most, most men my age, if they're asked to pick their favorite superhero, they usually go with Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. A lot have gone with Iron Man now because of, you know, the recent MCU stuff. But uh, because of the 2004, a lot of people are my age are drawn to Spider-Man. Yeah, sure. Uh, so imagine my joy and glee coming off the high of No Way Home to find out one of the most famous Spider-Man villains was going to get his own movie. <gasps> Green Goblin? Mysterio? We wish. It was Morbius, who's a vampire. Oh. And if the MCU's making it, you know I'm on board. Except the MCU didn't make it. Instead, Sony Pictures pulled from their rogues gallery of discounted Spider-Man uh, characters <laughs> that they acquired when Marvel almost went bankrupt uh, in the 1990s. So, uh, I hated it. I went and I saw it, and I hated it. So get ready for a spoiler-ridden, no-holds-back review that I wrote on Rod Tomatoes because I saw that the audience score on Rod Tomatoes was 70%, and I wanted to do my part to lower that as much as possible. Because <laughs> y'all jaded as hell, and you don't know what a good movie is. So I'm going to tell you what's wrong with this movie. Wait, maybe if I want to go watch it, I shouldn't be listening. Don't. You don't. Go watch yeah, it. Don't. don't? Okay. Hey, let me start with that. Con Spoilers for Morbius... Don't go watch it. It doesn't matter. <laughs> and I hope that any future plan Sony has gets absolutely scrapped. So anyway, on Rotten Tomatoes right now, Morbius is sitting at a 16%, according to critics. Mm -hmm. According to audiences, it's sitting at a 70%. A 70% is a passing grade, and that's bullshit, because this movie <laughs> is a huge and utter failure. What I'm about to read are the exact words that I wrote for my very first Rotten Tomato review in an attempt to lower that 70% at least to a 69. Nice. <laughs> nice. Here we go. I gave it a half a star. Scolding. Uh, out of five. Out of five, I gave it one half a star. Scolding. Because you cannot give it zero stars. <laughs> they will not let you. They tell you you have to put in something. So one half a star is what it got because it was a movie, technically. By definition, <laughs> let's start the review now. The best that I can say is no. I don't consider myself an expert in the cinematic arts, but I know a con when I see one. Sony's attempt to side door their way into the success of the MCU is a blatant slap in the face to fans of the long running expanded universe that Marvel has spent years making. But we will get to that. Morbius as a movie suffers from one absolute fatal flaw bad writing. Riddled with cliches, this movie doesn't try to hide what it is, a boring vampire movie. 
from the struggles of turning people you care about uh, to watching those you care about die, it honestly felt like the script was written to the tune of a child's connect the dots puzzle where each dot was another dried out heartless story beat where we've seen regurgitated since the classic Dracula. I swear, if I get one more slow zoom into the eyes of a quote unquote dead character just to have them jolt open, I'm going to lose it. <laughs> On terms of acting, I wasn't a fan. Most actors and actresses lacked any form of real motivation beyond self-preservation. This leaves two-dimensional performances that repeatedly had me asking, why am I watching this? <laughs> there is nothing new to be discovered. The flow of the movie is absolutely horrendous. At one hour and 50 minutes, I can forgive a lot. It's difficult to introduce a character... Uh, and have you understand them and their history in such a short time. This movie falls to the same sin as Eternals of attempting to walk the watcher through the past and make its way to the present. They often or they oft they offered no form of discovery and instead approached with an okay, we cool, can we just vamp it up vibe that made me not care about the character at all. Okay, let's talk about the after credit scenes. Never have I felt so upset by what I can only assume was another half-assed attempt to crawl into the MCU's shadow. The first after credit scene once again felt heartless, as I thought its creation was decided solely on an ends-justify-the-means decision, and for that, it is sloppy and rushed and embarrassing. Terrible execution. It's clear to me by this scene alone that Sony has no issue exploiting the success of the MCU to get people in seats without any real want to learn or develop engaging characters. <clears throat> I'm getting worked up. I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> Going so far as to take a villain from the MCU and plop him into their universe like, see, they're connected. We're part of it. They showed no interest in exploring the Vulture's past. Just they wanted to have him. You're telling me this man with a wife and daughter he clearly loves and wants to protect and to provide for doesn't give a shit about going home and instead just wants to kick Spider-Man's ass, as we learned from the second end credit scene, even though he protected him as part of his redemption arc at the end of Spider-Man Homecoming. Mm -hmm. On note of the second end credit scene, the dialogue was lazy and uninspired. I felt like I was watching a toddler slam two action figures together. Lazy <laughs> attempt at forcing people to see a Sinister Six movie they would have rather seen Kevin Feige make. The sad truth is, none of this really matters. The same people who leave five-star reviews for this movie will tell you that my review is harsh and that I'm a hater, when honestly, I just know exploitation when I see it, and I want to speak out about it. Sony is a company that has made itself clear on its intentions. They want your money, and they want to do as little work as possible to get it, and they know you'll give it to them. At the end of the day, all Sony wants is to convince audiences that they can create the same quality entertainment as Marvel Studios has for the past 10 years or so, with absolutely none of the hard work or soul involved. They are trying to make a cheap version they know they can make a buck on, just like with Venom. All in all, seeing Morbius was like buying a bootleg toy at a flea market. It was fun and exciting in concept, but all I was left with was a half-made project that was broken out the box. Shame on Sony, and I hope they pull their heads out of their asses and actually try next time instead of trick people, period. Huh. Nice. Guess I won't go see it then. <laughs> I, that's how I truly feel about Morbius. Yeah, I gave Sony too much of my money already, so... <laughs> Hey, how long did it take me to get through that? Seven minutes. 
Oops. Not, not, not bad. You know. Not bad. Well, I meant every word of it. <laughs> it was from the heart, and that's what matters. I thought it was well said. Yeah. Um, don't go see Morbius. Uh, and don't go see the Sinister Six movie. And, you know, whatever else Sony wants to put out, don't go see it. Fuck those guys. That's what I got to say about it. <laughs> that's and I don't care who hears it. Uh, furthermore, thank you so much for watching. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate you guys coming in and watching and we appreciate you guys making it to the end um if there's something that we have yet to cover on this show there are a couple of awesome excellent very cool ways you can reach out to us and suggest to us your topics one such way is to go onto our website specifically www.entertainthis.net slash et podcast I think it's ET-podcast. You scroll all the way to the bottom, and there's a questionnaire you can fill out there. Get sent straight to us, uh, and that's the quickest and easiest way that you can suggest topics topics to us. Why are you dabbing? What? Hmm? Nick, why are you dabbing? No, that was a slash, see? No. Oh, slash. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Um, another easy way to reach out to us is via Twitter. You can find us at entertain underscore this or on instagram you can find us at entertain this podcast on facebook we're podcast entertain this and until next week thank you so much for listening and entertain us so we can entertain you and you can entertain this we'll see you guys next friday bye bye, bye. This episode of Entertain This was written by me, Nick Mustakangas, with additional commentary from Michael Savoya and Alex Steele. Our showrunner and resident fact checker is Chloe Price. Our theme music is Rush Bubble by Aaron Spencer, with interstitial music by DJW. Tune in every Friday for new episodes, and thanks for listening.